0: Chapter Thirteen Part Two of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Thirteen Part Two. And Miss Keeldar paused, having uttered this prohibition very decidedly. She soon recommenced still looking somewhat corse. Why, it is my daily pleasure now to look out for the little cottage bonnet and the silk scarf, glancing through the trees in the lane, and to know that my quiet, shrewd, thoughtful companion and monitress is coming back to me, that I shall have her sitting in the room to look at, to talk to, or to let alone, as she and I please. This may be a selfish sort of language, I know it is, but it is the language which naturally rises to my lips, "'Therefore, I utter it. "'I would write to you, Shirley. "'And what are letters? "'Only a sort of pisaller. "'Drink some tea, Caroline. "'Eat something. "'You eat nothing. "'Laugh and be cheerful. "'And stay at home.' "'Miss Helstone shook her head and sighed. "'She felt what difficulty she would have "'to persuade any one to assist or sanction her "'in making that change in her life "'which she believed desirable. "'Might she only follow her own judgment?' she thought she could be able to find, perhaps a harsh, but an effectual cure for her sufferings. But this judgment, founded on circumstances she could fully explain to none, least of all to Shirley, seemed, in all eyes but her own, incomprehensible and fantastic, and was accordingly opposed. There really was no present pecuniary need for her to leave a comfortable home and take a situation— and there was every probability that her uncle might in some way permanently provide for her. So her friends thought, and, as far as their lights enabled them to see, they reasoned correctly. But of Caroline's strange sufferings, which she desired so eagerly to overcome or escape, they had no idea. Of her racked nights and dismal days, no suspicion. It was at once impossible and hopeless to explain— To wait and endure was her only plan. Many that want food and clothing have cheerier lives and brighter prospects than she had. Many, harassed by poverty, are in a strait less afflictive. "'Now, is your mind quieted?' inquired Shirley. "'Will you consent to stay at home?' "'I shall not leave it against the approbation of my friends,' was the reply." "'But I think in time they will be obliged to think as I do.' During this conversation Mrs. Pryor looked far from easy. Her extreme habitual reserve would rarely permit her to talk freely, or to interrogate others closely. She could think a multitude of questions she never ventured to put, give advice in her mind, which her tongue never delivered. Had she been alone with Caroline, she might possibly have said something to the point— Miss Kilder's presence, accustomed as she was to it, sealed her lips. Now, as on a thousand other occasions, inexplicable nervous scruples kept her back from interfering. She merely showed her concern for Miss Helstone in an indirect way, by asking her if the fire made her too warm, placing a screen between her chair and the hearth, closing a window whence she imagined a draught proceeded, and often and relentlessly glancing at her. Shirley resumed. "'Having destroyed your plan,' she said, "'which I hope I have done, "'I shall construct a new one of my own. "'Every summer I make an excursion. "'This season I propose spending two months "'either at the Scotch Lochs or the English Lakes. "'That is, I shall go there, "'provided you consent to accompany me. "'If you refuse, I shall not stir a foot.' "'You are very good, Shirley,' I would be very good if you would let me. I have every disposition to be good. It is my misfortune and habit, I know, to think of myself paramount to anybody else, but who is not like me in that respect. However, when Captain Kielder is made comfortable, accommodated, with all he wants, including a sensible genial comrade, it gives him a thorough pleasure to devote his spare efforts to making that comrade happy. And should we not be happy, Caroline, in the Highlands?' we will go to the Highlands. We will, if you can bear a sea-voyage, go to the Isles, the Hebrides, the Shetlands, the Orkney Islands. Would you not like that? I see you would. Mrs. Pryor, I call you to witness. Her face is all sunshine at the bare mention of it.' "'I should like it much,' returned Caroline, to whom, indeed, the notion of such a tour was not only pleasant, but gloriously reviving.' Shirley rubbed her hands. "'Come, I can bestow a benefit,' she exclaimed. "'I can do a good deed with my cash. My thousand a year is not merely a matter of dirty banknotes and jaundiced guineas. Let me speak respectfully of both, though, for I adore them. But it may be—health to the drooping, strength to the weak, consolation to the sad. I was determined to make something of it better than a fine old house to live in, than satin gowns to wear, better than deference from acquaintance, and homage from the poor. Here is to begin. This summer, Caroline, Mrs. Pryor, and I go out into the North Atlantic, beyond the Shetland, perhaps to the Faroe Isles. We will see seals in Sudero, and, doubtless, mermaids in Stromo. Caroline is laughing, Mrs. Pryor. I made her laugh. I have done her good. "'I shall like to go, surely,' again said Miss Helstone. "'I long to hear the sound of waves, ocean-waves, "'and to see them as I have imagined them in dreams, "'like tossing banks of green light, "'strewed with vanishing and reappearing reeds of foam, "'whiter than lilies. "'I shall delight to pass the shores of those lone rock islets, "'where the seabirds live and breed unmolested. "'We shall be on the track of the old Scandinavians, "'of the Norsemen.' we shall almost see the shores of Norway. This is a very vague delight that I feel, communicated by your proposal, but it is a delight. Will you think of fitful head, now, when you lie awake at night, of gulls streaking round it, and waves tumbling in upon it, rather than of graves, under the rectory hat-kitchen? I will try, and instead of musing about remnants of shrouds, and fragments of coffins, and human bones and moulds, I will fancy seals lying in the sunshine on solitary shores, where neither fisherman nor hunter ever come, of rock crevices full of pearly eggs bedded in seaweeds, of unscared birds covering white sands in happy flocks. And what will become of that inexpressible weight you said you had on your mind? I will try to forget it in speculation on the sway of the whole great deep above a herd of whales rushing through the livid and liquid thunder down from the frozen zone, a hundred of them, perhaps, wallowing, flashing, rolling in the wake of a patriarch bull, huge enough to have been spawned before the flood, such a creature as poor Smart had in his mind when he said, "'Strong against tides, the enormous whale emerges as he goes.'" I hope our bark will meet with no such shoal or herd as you term it, Caroline. I suppose you fancy the sea-mammoths pasturing about the bases of the everlasting hills, devouring strange provender in the vast valleys, through and above which the sea billers roll. I should not like to be capsized by the patriarch bull. I suppose you expect to see mermaids, Shirley? One of them, at any rate. I do not bargain for less, and she is to appear in some such fashion as this i am to be walking by myself on deck rather late of an august evening watching and being watched by a full harvest moon something is to rise white on the surface of the sea over which that moon mounts silent and hangs glorious the object glitters and sinks it rises again i think i hear it cry with an articulate voice i call you up from the cabin i show you an image fair as alabaster emerging from the dim wave. We both see the long hair, the lifted and foam-white arm, the oval mirror, brilliant as a star. It glides nearer. A human face is plainly visible, a face in the style of yours, whose straight, pure— excuse the word, it is not appropriate— whose straight, pure lineaments, paleness does not disfigure. It looks at us, but not with your eyes. I see a preternatural lore in its wily glance. It beckons. Were we men, we should spring at the sign. The cold billow would be dared for the sake of the colder enchantress. Being women, we stand safe, though not dreadless. She comprehends our unmoved gaze. She feels herself powerless. Anger crosses her front. She cannot charm. But she will appall us. She rises high— AND GLIDES ALL REVEALED ON THE DARK WAVE-RIDGE. TEMPTRESS TERROR! MONSTROUS LIKENESS OF OURSELVES! ARE YOU NOT GLAD, CAROLINE, WHEN AT LAST, AND WITH A WILD shriek, SHE DIVES? BUT, SURELY, SHE IS NOT LIKE US. WE ARE NEITHER TEMPTRESSES, NOR TERRORS, NOR MONSTERS. SOME OF OUR KIND, IT IS SAID, ARE ALL THREE. There are men who ascribe to, woman in general, such attributes. "'My dears,' here interrupted Mrs. Pryor, "'does it not strike you that your conversation for the last ten minutes "'has been rather fanciful?' "'But there is no harm in our fancies, is there, ma'am?' "'We are aware that mermaids do not exist. "'Why speak of them as if they did? "'How can you find interest in speaking of a nonentity? "'I don't know,' said Shirley. "'My dear, I think there is an arrival. I heard a step in the lane, while you were talking. And is not that the garden gate which creaks?' Shirley stepped to the window. "'Yes, there is someone,' said she, turning quietly away, and as she resumed her seat a sensitive flush animated her face, while a trembling ray at once kindled and softened her eye. She raised her hand to her chin— cast her gaze down, and seemed to think as she waited. The servant announced Mr. Moore, and Shirley turned round when Mr. Moore appeared at the door. His figure seemed very tall as he entered, and stood in contrast with the three ladies, none of whom could boast a stature much beyond the average. He was looking well, better than he had been known to look for the past twelve months. A sort of renewed youth glowed in his eye and colour, and an invigorated hope and settled purpose, sustained his bearing. Firmness in his countenance still indicated, but not austerity. It looked as cheerful as it was earnest. "'I am just returned from Stillborough,' he said to Miss Kildar, as he greeted her, and I thought I would call to impart to you the result of my mission. "'You did write not to keep me in suspense,' she said, "'and your visit is well timed. Sit down,' we have not finished tea. Are you English enough to relish tea, or do you faithfully adhere to coffee? More accepted tea. I am learning to be a naturalized Englishman, said he. My foreign habits are leaving me one by one. And now he paid his respects to Mrs. Pryor, and paid them well, with a grave modesty that became his age, compared with hers. Then he looked to Caroline, not, however, for the first time, his glance had fallen upon her before, he bent towards her, as she sat, gave her his hand, and asked her how she was. The light from the window did not fall upon Miss Helstone; her back was turned towards it. A quiet though rather low reply, a still demeanour, and the friendly protection of early twilight, kept out of view each traitorous symptom. None could affirm that she had trembled or blushed, that her heart had quaked, or her nerves thrilled. None could prove emotion. A greeting, showing less effusion, was never interchanged. Moore took the empty chair near her, opposite Miss Kildar. He had placed himself well. His neighbor, screened by the very closeness of this vicinage, from his scrutiny, and sheltered further by the dusk which deepened each moment, soon regained not merely seeming, but real mastery of the feelings— which had started into insurrection at the first announcement of his name. He addressed his conversation to Miss Kildar. "'I went to the barracks,' he said, and had an interview with Colonel Ryde. He approved my plans, and promised the aid I wanted. Indeed, he offered a more numerous force than I require. Half a dozen will suffice. I don't intend to be swamped by redcoats. They are needed for appearance rather than anything else.' "'My main reliance is on my own civilians.' "'And on their captain?' interposed Shirley. "'What? Captain Kildar?' inquired Moore, "'slightly smiling and not lifting his eyes. "'The tone of raillery in which he said this "'was very respectful and suppressed.' "'No,' returned Shirley, answering the smile. "'Captain Gerard Moore, who trusts much "'to the prowess of his own right arm, I believe.' "'Furnished with his counting-house ruler,' added Moore. Resuming his usual gravity, he went on. "'I received, by this evening's post, a note from the Home Secretary in answer to mine. It appears they are uneasy at the state of matters here in the North. They especially condemn the supineness and pusillanimity of the mill-owners. They say, as I have always said, that inaction, under present circumstances, is criminal.' and that cowardice is cruelty since both can only encourage disorder and lead finally to sanguinary outbreaks there is the note i brought it for your perusal and there is a batch of newspapers containing further accounts of proceedings in nottingham manchester and elsewhere he produced letters and journals and laid them before miss kildar while she perused them he took his tea quietly but though his tongue was still his observant faculties seemed by no means off duty. Mrs. Pryor, sitting in the background, did not come within the range of his glance, but the two younger ladies had the full benefit thereof. Miss Kildar, placed directly opposite, was seen without effort. She was the object his eyes, when lifted, naturally met first, and as what remains of daylight, the gilding of the west, was upon her her shape rose in relief from the dark panelling behind. Shirley's clear cheek was tinted yet with the colour which had risen into it a few minutes since. The dark lashes of her eyes, looking down as she read, the dusk, yet delicate, line of her eyebrows, the almost sable gloss of her curls, made her heightened complexion look fine as the bloom of a red wild flower. by contrast. There was natural grace in her attitude— and there was artistic effort in the ample and shining folds of her silk dress, an attire simply fashioned, but almost splendid, from the shifting brightness of its dye, warp, and woof, being of tints deep and changing as the hue on a pheasant's neck. A glancing bracelet on her arm produced the contrast of gold and ivory. There was something brilliant in the whole picture. It is to be supposed that Moore, thought so, as his eyes dwelt long on it, but he seldom permitted his feelings, or his opinions, to exhibit themselves in his face. His temperament boasted a certain amount of phlegm, and he preferred an undemonstrative, not ungentle, but serious aspect, to any other. He could not, by looking straight before him, see Caroline, as she was close at his side. It was necessary, therefore, to maneuver a little to get her well within the range of his observation— he leaned back in his chair and looked down on her. In Miss Helstone, neither he nor anyone else could discover brilliancy. Sitting in the shade, without flowers or ornaments, her attire, the modest muslin dress, colorless, but for its narrow stripe of pale azure, her complexion unflushed, unexcited, the very brownness of her hair and eyes invisible by this faint light, she was, compared with the heiress, as a graceful pencil-sketch compared with a vivid painting. Since Robert had seen her last, a great change had been wrought in her. Whether he perceived it might not be ascertained. He said nothing to that effect. "'How is Hortense?' asked Caroline softly. "'Very well, but she complains of being unemployed. She misses you. "'Tell her that I miss her, and that I write and read a portion of French every day.' she will ask if you sent your love. She is always particular on that point. You know she likes attention. My best love, my very best. And say to her that whenever she has time to write me a little note, I shall be glad to hear from her. What if I forget? I am not the surest messenger of compliments. No, don't forget, Robert. It is no compliment. It is in good earnest. And must therefore be delivered punctually.' if you please. Hortense will be ready to shed tears. She is tender-hearted on the subject of her pupil. Yet she reproaches you sometimes for obeying your uncle's injunctions too literally. Affection, like love, will be unjust now and then. And Caroline made no answer to this observation, for indeed her heart was troubled, and, to her eyes, she would have raised her handkerchief, if she had dared to— She would have declared how the very flowers in the garden of Hollow's Cottage were dear to her, how the little parlour of that house was her earthly paradise, how she longed to return to it as much, almost, as the first woman in her exile must have longed to revisit Eden. Not daring, however, to say these things, she held her peace. She sat quietly at Robert's side, waiting for him to say something more— It was long since this proximity had been hers, long since his voice had addressed her. Could she, with any show of probability, even of possibility, have imagined that the meeting gave him pleasure, to her it would have given deep bliss? Yet, even in doubt that it pleased, in dread that it might annoy him, she received the boon of the meeting as an imprisoned bird would the admission of sunshine to its cage. It is of no use arguing— Contending against the sense of present happiness to be near Robert was to be revived end of section twenty four recording by katie riley september two thousand nine